This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. This edition of The Feed is brought to you by Peak Performance. If you are a startup, small business, or even a mid-sized enterprise needing professional HR support, your solutions await with Peak Performance HR. Not every organization requires a full-time HR specialist, and Peak Performance HR offers fractional, flexible, and cost-effective outsourced HR services tailored to your unique needs. Visit peakperformancehr.ca. Coming up on the feed, Diwali celebrations, World Kindness Day, and Holocaust education. But we begin with Remembrance Day 2023. It may have a different meaning for some this year, with conflicts and combat and all-out war raging in certain parts of the world right now. We asked three great Canadians from different generations to join us on this special edition of The Feed, offering their thoughts on Remembrance Day and what it means to them. A general, an astronaut, and an air cadet. We begin with the general. Honorary Lieutenant General of the Canadian Armed Forces Richard Romer, soon to be 100 years of age, is this country's most decorated military veteran. His actions and reactions as a fighter reconnaissance pilot during WW2 helped change the course of the war, a war the Allies won, and that hard-fought victory allows us to live in peace and with freedom today. He is now our guest on the feed. General Romer, why was it important for you to join the RCAF in 1942 at the tender age of 18? Why did you want to do that? I wanted to fly an airplane. One of my ambitions in life had been to fly, and I knew that if I joined the Air Force, the likelihood of my being trained as a pilot was a real one. So I joined the Air Force. Tell us the story of catching Rommel. Catching Rommel was a an event that I knew was happening, but I didn't know who was involved. I was a reconnaissance pilot flying a Mustang at low level. I found this big staff car with people in it traveling down a highway at great speed. I couldn't do anything, couldn't shoot him up. I wasn't permitted to do that. So I called in a Spitfire by radio who shot up the car, and in it was, in the passenger seat in the front, was a a general called Rommel, a great uh, German general. I didn't know that then, so I had a hand in getting Field Marshal Rommel. And that uh, changed the course of the war. That's, That's a great responsibility on your part, but also an honor as well. Absolutely. It was something I didn't know about fully until after the war, because... The Germans didn't let out much information about crashes and things like that. The number 13 is very lucky in our family. You had 13 bullets in your airplane, and I think that had a lot to do with the luck of number 13. You lived to tell the tale. I lived to tell the tale on the 13th of July, I think it was, in '44. I got hit by anti-aircraft. The number you talked about, 13 holes in the airplane... I escaped. It didn't hit me, but they hit my airplane and almost shredded it. But I got back to base. That was the main thing. Dad, what does Remembrance Day mean to you? This is your final Remembrance Day before you turn 100. Yes, well, I'm going to be 100 on January the 24th. Living long is something that I hadn't anticipated. Mm-hmm. 
But I'm enjoying now because I'm being looked after by my beautiful daughter, Anne, who's on the line. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, other members of the family. And so it's uh, a great treat. I don't know how long beyond this point I will live. I've got three months to go <laughs> to make 100, and I'm pretty sure that I'll make it all right. And does Remembrance Day mean more to you every year? It means more. Because its significance uh, is so broad and so sweeping in terms of what it stands for in terms of life and death and very, very important for families who have lost people in war. What is your message to those who may not yet understand the meaning of war and the importance of peace? We have to survive through it if we have to fight wars. We have been away from wars for quite some time now, and I hope we stay away from any wars that may appear, because it's very deadly, very costly, and very traumatic. Are you proud of what you did when you served in World War II and all of the the work that you've done for and with the military since? Are you proud of, of that part of your life? I'm very proud of my my life uh, fighting the war as a reconnaissance pilot and a Mustang fighter. But I also knocked with a big artillery gun a huge bridge at a place called Venlo in Holland, which uh, cut off all German ability to retreat. And uh, in the end result, the Germans surrendered in Holland to Canadian forces on May the 5th. 1945. There you are. And now the astronaut, Colonel Jeremy Hansen, will become the first Canadian ever to travel to the moon as part of the Artemis II mission scheduled to launch on November 24th next year. Hansen joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 1994, where he became a CF-18 fighter pilot and has been awarded many honors throughout his exemplary military career, including top Air Force graduate from the Royal Canadian Military College of Canada, important stepping stones to the moon, CSA astronaut Jeremy Hansen is our guest now on the feed. Welcome to the show. It's great to meet you over the airwaves, Jeremy. Thank you. Ah, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you are launching in 12 and a half months on November 24th, 2024. What happens in terms of training and preparation between now and then, Jeremy? Well, we're going full steam these days. Um, just this morning, I just came from a simulator training event where you're, you're sitting in front of the, the displays, managing the vehicle, looking at certain failure indications. But really what's happening is we're just trying to figure all of this out. It's the first time we put humans on the vehicle. There's an enormous team of people that are doing incredible work, and we're all taking this one step at a time. So People might think, well, we have it all figured out and we're just waiting for the launch date. No, we're building it right now. We're finalizing things. Code is being written as we're speaking. We're finding little problems and errors and we're fixing them and moving forward. And are you learning to work together as well? Oh, absolutely. That's obviously a key component of space exploration. If you could go to space on your own, I would have been there years ago as a kid (laughs) in my treehouse. You just can't do it. It takes a huge team of people. And uh, we have to work together. So one of the greatest examples of the space program is we set really big and difficult goals. And then what you see is people with their genius, they show up and they just start creating solutions for really hard problems, things that you could look at in a glance and be like, oh, there's no way. People will come up with crazy ways to work around it. And I love seeing people do that. 
Take us back to when you got the call, the text, or the email telling you that you'd been selected by the Canadian Space Agency as a recruit. In other words, you were on your way to being an astronaut. What was that like for you? It was a pretty powerful day for me. It was a call from the, the president of the Canadian Space Agency at the time, Steve McLean. I was sitting in Cold Lake, Alberta. And uh, that that was a big moment where it's like, wow, I'm going to have a chance uh, at this dream of exploring space. And it was also, you know, when you have a moment like that, it's really humbling because you realize in a moment like that, wow, I am really lucky. I, yes, I showed up with the skill. A lot of people invested in me and created the skill sets I needed. However, I also got really lucky um, to pursue this goal and to join this team. And it becomes a very humbling sensation. How did Artemis II come about for you? How and why were you assigned to this mission? Well, mostly just my time. So we have a pretty small astronaut corps in Canada. There's four active astronauts. Any one of them could fly this mission. They're all, we're all equally qualified to, to fly the mission. But we, we kind of just go in order. I mean, I didn't make the decisions. I couldn't really tell you. But that's my sense mm-hmm. is that it was just my turn to fly, and this was the opportunity that Canada had in front of it. Talk about opposites. You spent time, Nemo 19, living and working on the ocean floor in the Aquarius habitat off Key Largo. So from the ocean floor, from under the water to outer space, that must be quite an incredible change and transition, or is it? There's a lot of similarities, actually. That's why we do it. Uh, We have basically a little mini space station on the ocean floor off the Key Largo, Florida, and, you know, it gets used for research most of the time, but w- once in a while, NASA will take it over in and, and, and international collaboration as well, different partners, in my case, obviously, the Canadian Space Agency, and we, we simulate a space mission on the ocean floor. Why do we do that? Well, a few things. One, it's a real operational environment. It's, it is quite dangerous to live down on the ocean floor. You can't just come to the surface. If you have a problem, you would get the bends, which is nitrogen buildup in your blood. And so you are managing real risk in a real operational environment, and we're doing real science and learning and exercising things that we would do on the moon or Mars. So it's just a really great place to train astronauts to explore, to be explorers, but here on Earth. Jeremy, your first flight experience really began at age 12 when you joined the Air Cadet program. How important was that move for you? Uh, I credit Air Cadets with a major shift in my my life path. There's no doubt about it. I was a pretty shy young farm boy. I had this passion for flying. I don't even know really where it came from. I was just drawn to it, and that pushed me into the Air Cadet program. I didn't really love all the aspects of the Air Cadet program, mm-hmm. polishing my boots, ironing my pants, <laughs> doing, you know, marching around in a parade square. Um, it was hard. And, but I wanted to fly. And that motivation ended up, you know, pushing me into that program. And the more, longer I was there, the more I learned to love it. The more I realized, well, was, well I, I realize it now in hindsight, probably more than ever, but it was really equipping me with the skills and the confidence that I needed to move forward and join the Royal Canadian Air Force. So Air Cadets was life-changing for me. I owe that program a lot. This is Remembrance Day weekend. Jeremy, What does Remembrance Day mean to you, and in particular this year? We talk about the conflicts on planet Earth, and you are a year away from traveling to the moon. Remembrance Day reminds me that leadership is really, really important. Humans can be led to do amazing things like travel to the moon or to create solutions to help us live better on this planet or to create solutions that help us thrive here together, all of us. Um, people can also be led to do horrible things. War is a horrible thing, and it um, everybody loses in war. 
And so it just reminds me that, you know, I'm not satisfied with how humanity is doing on the planet today. And it reminds me that leadership is extremely important. And the other thing that it reminds me of is like when I look at Remembrance Day, like it's very powerful for me. I look at the veterans that, that we still have with us and I am reminded by what humanity can do when it is driven with, you know, with the intent to help one another. I look at those examples. They went through something horrible, but they decided that they were going to stand together for what they believed in. So we must lead people to believe in things that lift us all up together, and we must know that people can do the extraordinary things to follow through on them. We must believe in them. And the Air Cadet, military buff and aviation enthusiast Alistair Christie found his calling when, at the age of 12, he joined 296 Royal Canadian Air Cadet Squadron in Cambridge, Ontario. He's now 13, but with the wisdom and maturity of a 30-year-old. This life-changing experience as an Air Cadet so far has helped Alistair set his future goals and dare to dream about an aviation career in the Canadian Armed Forces. Welcome to the feed, Alistair. Hello, how are you today? Well, better for hearing your voice, and thank you. This is Remembrance Day weekend, so let's go back a little bit in time. Why did you join the Air Cadets? Well, I joined the Air Cadets uh, because I I love the military aspect of it because um, I was really interested in military and still am, uh, especially as a younger little fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I just uh, I one of my greatest inspirations is Chris Hadfield, and I realized. I, I was watching a video about him, and he said that he was an air cadet. So I was like, well, I'm going to, I might join that because, I mean, if he took the path of air cadets, then I thought that I might as well, too, if that's going to help me out. So I decided to do that, especially just because I have a love of aviation, and I feel like that would be fun. It will, um, joining air cadets goes on my resume, and it, I feel like it will increase my chances of getting into a space agency or an air force. Interesting, we just spoke with astronaut Jeremy Hansen on the show, and he talked glowingly and lovingly about air cadets as well. He said it really was what started him on his path to where he is today. Are you hoping, essentially, to become an astronaut, to explore new worlds that we don't know anything about? Yes, I am. My, uh, a big goal of mine is to discover things that like, we don't even know right now and to pass that information on to future generations. Who has influenced you, other than Chris Hadfield, of course, uh, who has yeah. influenced you in, in terms of your passion for the military and for aviation? Well, Jeremy Hansen. Well, mm-hmm. all, yeah, obviously him too. He's, he's, he's a pretty cool guy. <laughs> also, there are some uh, YouTube channels with uh, pilots that I enjoy watching. And then also um, somebody else who's just influenced me, not in like, you know, the space world and stuff, but my mom is a, a big influence for me or just my parents in general, because they give good advice for mindset. My mindset really helps me a lot. So what does Remembrance Day mean to you, a 13-year-old air cadet? What does it mean to you? Remembrance Day to me means remembering, respecting the people, what what they uh, what they did for us uh, during the uh, war, uh, to give us our freedom and everything we have today. Without without them, I I would not be able to reach for my dreams. Hmm. Is it more meaningful to you, Alistair, with so many conflicts going on around the world? We think about Ukraine and Russia, that war. We think about Israel and Hamas, that war. And there are so many other areas of conflict on planet Earth right now. Does Remembrance Day have a 
a special meaning this year in particular? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think it's it's also a time to uh, stop and think about the modern wars that are also going on too. That's that's why we uh, wear a poppy on the left side. Mm. Any advice to other young people who are listening right now about the importance of understanding our history and our military history, but also embracing Canada's future? What's your advice to other young people? Well, the history and the past of our country determines our future. That's very well put. Before I let you go, I have to find out more about your time as an air cadet. What's been the most challenging operations so far as an air cadet? There have been many different challenges, but we sometimes go on FTXs, which stands for field training exercises. When we go on those, sometimes it can be in harsh weather conditions, like well, sometimes it can be in the winter, sometimes it can be in the spring. And so it can be some harsh weather sometimes and it gets really cold, especially for you have to stay uh, there for about two nights. We always talk about dare to dream. Do I dare dream that someday I will be calling you Colonel Alistair Christie, Canadian Armed Forces, CSA astronaut? Yes, that is a, a big possibility. General Richard Romer, thank you for our freedom. Colonel Jeremy Hansen, thank you for giving us hope. Air Cadet Alistair Christie, you are our future. The Feed will be right back. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The provincial government is strengthening Holocaust education with new mandatory learning. Glenn Perkins with the minister. When grade 10 students return from their summer break in September 2025, they will be met by a new mandatory curriculum. It's an expansion of one that is already in place, teaching about the horrors of the Holocaust. I asked King Vaughan MPP and Education Minister Stephen Lecce about this new curriculum. It's a critical expansion in Holocaust and civic education to help counter the rising threat of anti-Semitism and intolerance within our communities and, of course, our schools. Liberation 75 in Western University conducted a poll just about two years ago uh, affirming that one in three Canadian children believe the Holocaust was either exaggerated or entirely fabricated, which is deeply troubling. So this curriculum is necessary to strengthen learning of our past so that we're not doomed to repeat it today. And it includes new components, specifically on the rise of dangerous ideologies, how societies allow the uh, incremental rise of values that counter democratic principles and how they really need not be bystanders. And there's a component that also deals with uh, denialism, the rise of denialism from those who faced uh, persecution. It's very troubling. But I see education as a critical weapon against division and hate. And I'm excited to have been doing this, uh, building upon Ontario's leadership. Just last year, where we announced uh, we'll be the first province in Canada to introduce mandatory Holocaust education within elementary schools. That's already in place this September. So we're building upon our leadership in the country. With the new curriculum, it can be added to and changed as necessary? It allows us the ability to build upon learning and it also allows us to demonstrate 
to families out there that we're going to respond to growing threats and the anti-Semitic rise of hate, uh, among many other forms of hate, is very disturbing, it's pervasive, and it's a threat to our democracy and our social cohesion. So this is a positive step forward, recognizing it builds upon learning within our history curriculum. And I think all children will be better off as we try to ensure that kids are raised, educated in a society in Canada where they're respected for who they are and we don't see our differences and we lean into the fact that different faiths and communities and heritage of people can come together under uh, our pluralism as a country uh, and share within our, our values, Canadian values, fundamental values of freedom, of democracy, of human rights, the rule of law. And so this is going to be a cornerstone of the education. This isn't something that the province is doing on its own. You do have partners. Tell me about them. We leverage a great deal of partners uh, with organizations to help support our teachers with training because it's tough at the best of times to educate on genocide education and the Holocaust. So we want to empower educators to do their best through expanded resources, more training and more support. And I think that's going to go a long way to helping them. And also we've funded new resources for parents and students alike. And together this is going to make a big difference as we build that capacity and frankly build the confidence for adults and children to not be bystanders when they see these very dark symbols or actions uh, or statements being made within their communities and schools that they are active participants to denounce the hate and to also be allies in, um, in confronting it. And that's what we're trying to do, we're trying to build the confidence of students to never be bystanders when they see division, hate, racism, and the, uh, the othering of people, um, which is really important. And of course, as we know, uh, what starts with the Jewish community never ends with them. And so this is an important way to liberalize values, emancipate values that I want to believe unite us as Canadians against all peoples, against all kids. And so it's an important way by which we're strengthening civic knowledge and education and tolerance and respect. And I think that's at the forefront of what we're trying to do within Ontario's publicly funded schools. Minister Lecce, what training and resources will be made available to educators to effectively teach this sensitive topic? Well, this is a part of the uh, what I was just sharing about the new partnerships. That's part of the critical component of our success of the announcement was $650,000 of funding to perform training and professional development of our educators and to really help them uh, leverage knowledge, historical knowledge and tactics and effective best practices that allow them to help bring awareness and inspire change in classrooms. And so we really want to help the educators succeed, which is why we've unveiled a significant amount of funding and training to help them fundamentally scale up their knowledge and confidence to be allies and frankly, to really understand the intersection of uh, what transpired in the 30s and how these uh, very uh, dark moments in human history can repeat themselves today. What's the timeline for implementing these changes in high schools across the province and any expected challenges or opportunities that may arise during the process? Well, this will be in place by September of 2025. Uh, the new elementary uh, Holocaust education is in place this September. So we are the first province that have mandated it in, in elementary schools in Canada. Uh, we're very proud of that. That's already in place. The high school component will be strengthened over the next year and in place for September of 25. 
And, you know, and we're seeing momentum because Ontario's taken leadership in Canada, encouraging other provinces and territories to follow suit. I'm very proud that just last week, British Columbia announced they will follow Ontario's lead and adopt uh, mandatory learning. For them, it's going to be in the high school side of it, um, but it's a positive start. And we hope other provinces will follow suit to build a national consensus that never again must be our legacy to generations for the generations to come. We fundamentally we learn from our history so that we're not doomed to repeat it in Canada or, of course, around the world. You touched on it a moment ago that we are seeing an increase in hate crimes and anti-Semitism in recent weeks, especially on social media. Among those facing charges by Toronto police are teenagers. Is this one more step to stop this kind of behaviour? You know, I think fundamentally no child is born to hate, right? I mean, uh, I want to believe that young people in our country, uh, a nation that I believe has been an incredible space for people of every walk of life and faith and heritage, people from different oppressed experiences have come here seeking freedom and opportunity. That is our truth as a nation, uh, a land uh, that safeguarded those principles and being a safe haven from persecution. And I want families and Canadians to know that we'll uphold those values, we'll stand firm in the defense of democratic norms, and yes, we'll oppose the threats to democracy, like the rise of denialism, that I think is really a, a worrying trend. We've also, across the curriculum, just this year, implemented new skills in the language curriculum, like critical thinking skills, that teach children how to think critically, not what to think. So building that capacity on the ground is going to go a long way, life skills more than anything else, um, to supporting children and to fighting hate. Because yes, we've seen a sharp rise in anti-Semitic hate for a long time, but most especially over the past months. And look, I can tell you I was born an Italian Catholic. I, you know, My parents raised me to not be a bystander. I think of this year's the 90th anniversary of the Christie Pitts ride where Jews and Italians stood up to a angry mob of Nazis in the streets of Toronto 90 years ago. These types of incidents didn't happen some far off place. It happened on our shores. And therefore, we have to be on guard, proactive, and determined to denounce it when it happens to any faith community. But yes, most especially against some of the smallest faith communities in Canada who face some of the highest rates of hate crimes. It's just unacceptable. Finally, Minister, this is Remembrance Weekend. With everything that's going on in the world, we have Russia, Ukraine, and of course, Israel, Gaza. This announcement is timely, isn't it? It is. I think it's a reminder that you know our values, our shared values, that are that legions of Canadian forces valiantly upheld, that many of them gave the ultimate sacrifice in defense of freedom uh, and democracy are values that we cannot take for granted. And so I really use my platform to urge children in Ontario and across the country to wear a poppy with pride, to take a moment at a cenotaph to reflect on our rich military valor of always punching above our weight in the defense of values truly the light and darkness when it comes to fighting Nazism and communism and a variety of other extremism that uh, inflicts significant hardship on innocent people. And so I'm proud of our past, proud of the contributions of our veterans who really uh, upheld the best of Canada. And I continue to be proud of those that serve today. Arcadian forces who in many ways in peace and in wartime on land, sea and air 
uh, give so much of themselves to uphold those norms and our shared values. So please wear a poppy, take a moment to reflect, that we remember those that served and they'll continue to serve, particularly our young people. I want them to be inspired by our past, realizing that Canada has been a force for good and will continue to be so, um, so long as our young people remember the past and are committed to shaping our history in the future. And I want a history where democracy, where civility, uh, and where unity is our norm in this country. So I appreciate the question, and I encourage everyone to take a moment of reflection uh, to wear a poppy and to remember them. They, uh, the greatest generation, as uh, I believe President Reagan deemed uh, many years ago, and we owe it to them to remember their sacrifice and to honor their service. King Vaughan MPP and Education Minister Stephen Lecce, thank you for joining us on the feed today. Okay, have a good day. Thank you. After the break, celebrating the Festival of Lights. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Many are celebrating Diwali this weekend. Shaliza Bacchus now with the traditions marking the Festival of Lights. The Festival of Lights is happening this weekend. It's also known as Diwali and Hindus across the globe are going to be celebrating this weekend. I'm sure you've seen the beautiful lights, the beautiful colors, the beautiful food. And joining me now to tell us all about this holiday is Kidambi Raj. How are you? I'm fine. This, the, the Diwali is one of several major Hindu festivals. And actually, the word Diwali is a shortened form. It came from a Sanskrit word called Deepavali. That's what we use in South India, where Deep means lamp, Avali means in rows or in series. That is how the expression Diwali is a festival of lights, series of lights. And if uh, South India and Northern, if you go during Diwali, on the outside of the houses and in business, everywhere, there are a lot of lamps, so the light lit. And the significance is, lamp has a high significance to us. And this one festival is always on the no moon day in between October and November. And why light? Light has got a great significance in Hinduism. Light is a source of, like, light dispels darkness. Darkness symbolizes ignorance, light symbolizes knowledge and wisdom. So the light is we worship because we worship God saying that we should be enriched with knowledge. And other important thing is, somebody may say, why do you go through the, our lamp is a little earthen pot or a thing with a wick and an oil to light it. I had a discuss with a, um, when they come to the temple, they said, why go through all the hassle of this oil at all? I switch a light, switch, and it goes up, and it clears darkness. It's correct. But in Hinduism, we use sort of what you call symbol, symbolism to explain, because until about a couple of centuries ago, illiteracy was close to 99%. They use symbolism. What it is is the lamp that you use for Diwali, what you say, Hindu lamps, the wick and the oil has significance. And the wick symbolizes human ego, Oil symbolizes materialistic tendencies. So you light the lamp and leave it for a couple of hours. The wick completely is gone and the oil is dried up. All it means is we want our ego to go down 
and materialistic tendency to go so you think of god and other things that's the basic historical thing in significance the hindu is celebrate major festival here diwali we call it but it is also a day special for jain and also for sikh community the celebration will be different the significance for sikh is in 1577 on the diwali day is when they had the foundation stone laid for the temple called golden temple in amritsar in india that's the greatest temple for sikhs and for jain it is important because that is supposed to be the day the founder of the jain religion attained salvation for hindus the importance comes because it is a historical thing going back to our epic ramayana where king rama and his wife sita were there his wife sita was abducted by king from sri lanka at that time and took away and finally rama killed him and brought sita back to his kingdom and as he was coming in from a few hundred miles all the way to his home people all decorated the house in joy celebration and started that is how the festival of light started in the early days if you go to hindu temple like for instance ganesha temple or anywhere on the bavli day which is the saturday this year you will have a special celebration and for goddess lakshmi goddess of wealth and prosperity because it was on the bavli day that thousands and thousands of years ago goddess lakshmi incarnated in the world so that's one of the greatest significance for hindus as far as probably significant just concerned it's absolutely a beautiful way to describe the celebrations thank you for clarifying it for people who probably don't necessarily yeah. understand and how different communities celebrate the holiday and you're actually a very very active community member especially amongst the hindu community in richmond hill can you tell us a little yeah. bit about what you do yeah as i said i not only i do volunteer work on the richmond hill temple but for the last 15 years i do also the you know catholic school grade 11 students have a mandatory course called world religion wherein they have to know the basics very basics of other major religions and during the academic year at least once they should visit the places of worship of other major religions so they call the temple office and the last 15 years i've been doing them giving them a short talk for about half an hour on the very basics and give them a tour of the temple and besides that i've been writing since 2015 an article on the english monthly paper called monsoon journal in markham i write about different aspects of hinduism i can do festivals something so this is what i keep myself busy because i'm as i said i'm going to be 84 in the first week of december and i have to keep myself busy and my brain active that is that's amazing i just want to say thank you because you sound more active than people my age i'll tell you that for sure hey i have to do something right <laughs> i don't got <laughs> <laughs> I can't just say oh I'm old I can't do that much and the school in Thornhill Catholic school arranges once every second year they have the interfaith and I'm one of five six people representing different religions and each one they give a topic and we talk for 15 minutes and then students ask question I find this kind of uh, grade 11 thing they have catholic opens it up for others at least make an understanding that people following other religions than christianity are not something in different human beings or something we all have the same thing it is only the method of worship is different otherwise core values are exactly the same and that's what i try to teach everybody 
That is, that's amazing. Thank you so much for explaining all of this and coming to the Diwali celebrations here in York Region, because obviously it's a huge deal across the world, but what are celebrations going to look like here and maybe specifically in Richmond Hill? In Richmond Hill, there is a, uh, every year I, uh, I go with, along with the seniors and particularly the Tamil-speaking Sri Lanka. See, I come from Southern India. Southern India and people from Sri Lanka speak Tamil as the mother tongue. So they're all seniors and they have, different groups have, but I've been more attending on all these senior Sri Lankan group because they invite all these politicians and different people from non-Hindus for a function. What I do is my, they, they invite me just for the simple reason, just like I talk to you, I give a little 10 minutes talk beginning to them explaining in English clearly what the significance of this festival is and I do. And of course, at the end, as always, any Hindu festival, you have nice, sumptuous food, variety of things. More than that, every Hindu festival or religious things have a connotation. That basic thing is the legend. If you look at it, it is victory of good over evil and knowledge over ignorance like that. That's all the basic core value. If you go through the legends of every festival. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for explaining the significance of Diwali or Deepavali. And I hope you enjoy the weekend with your family and your loved ones. I hope that I did something. We'll talk to you later. Definitely did. Thank you, Kadambi Raj, for joining us on The Feed. World Kindness Day is just around the corner, perhaps needed now more than ever. Jim Lang with that story. Monday, November 13th is World Kindness Day, and without question, with everything going on in the world right now, we could use some kindness, including kindness closer to home. And to talk more about it, I'm thrilled to be joined by Amy Capel, the CEO of the Ontario Caregivers Organization and Association of Ontario. Uh, Amy, how are you? I am doing great and hope you are too. Well, I, I am fine, and I'm in the research for the interview, I was stunned to find out there's over 4,000 caregivers in our community in the province, and they're unpaid. I think most people would not be aware of that, Amy. You know, we have so many caregivers in Ontario. More than 4 million people are caregiving for a family member, friend, or neighbor with a physical or mental health condition. And so these people are often doing this quietly without any recognition, and they're providing an immense amount of support for our family members, friends, and neighbors. And when you think about it, with that much support from these people unpaid, to actually pay them, the province couldn't afford to do it. Caregivers actually provide approximately 75% of the care in the province. Wow. And much of that is at home, but sometimes that's supporting someone in hospital or long-term care. So they really are a vital part of not only our families and our communities, but our healthcare system too. As, as your organization points out, even the smallest act of kindness goes a long way. So let's talk about this today as we think about World Kindness Day. Be there. And I like this. Listen to them without judgment. Just listen to what they have to say. Well, here's what we know from caregivers. And I can tell you this my, as a caregiver myself. It can be stressful, we can deal with cycles of burnout, and it can also be really isolating. So being there for somebody, listening, providing that support, or doing that simple act of kindness, even a cup of coffee or offering to water the plants, can make a very big difference in somebody's life. I like the concept of a timeout, that you spend time with the 
give the care recipient to give the caregiver a much needed break? Respite is a huge thing that we hear about from caregivers all the time. This this need to just have a break to refocus and to take care of often other responsibilities that people have in their lives. Many caregivers work, they may have other family members or other responsibilities. So giving somebody a break is a huge act of kindness. I know my wife is the primary caregiver for her mother who has Alzheimer's. And uh, just the simple act of not having her drive, I'll drive her there so she has one less thing to worry about. She finds that's a big break as well. Oh, it's true. And this is why knowing the person, what is going to make the difference for them is really huge. You know that driving is going to make a big difference for her. For somebody else, it might be, you know what, if I can just run my shovel a little bit further along the sidewalk and get their snow shoveled, that's going to make a big difference. These little acts of kindness go a long way. And, and, it's, and, and the list is actually, it's, to me, it's common sense kindness. A pickup after a dog. So if you see the caregiver's dog went to the bathroom, just you pick up for them. Or just, you know what, I'll mow your lawn today. It only takes a few minutes, but it does go a long way. I think it does. And, and you know, I can say from my own experience, and we hear this consistently from caregivers, it can be really lonely. And, and it often can feel like other people don't know what you're doing. And that's okay because, you know, people don't need a parade or some big thing. But when you do those extra little bits of kindness in somebody's life, then it's a way of saying, I see you, I know what you're doing, and I'm here to support in a little way that works for you and works for me. Speaking with Amy Capel, who is the CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization for World Kindness Day, Monday, November the 13th, in your vast experience and knowledge in doing this in nonprofit and uh, dealing with the, you know people with physical and mental issues, it's so stressful. And I, and I think about the immediate caregiver, and I also think about the extended family of the caregiver, because if they have stress, you're dealing with it as well. And they could use all the support, the support group, the bigger the support group, to me, the better it is for everyone involved. You know, that is really true, and that's one of the reasons why we offer all of our free programs and services at the Ontario Caregiver Organization. One of the acts of kindness that people can do is actually sending them to us. People can visit our website at ontariocaregiver.ca or invite someone to call our helpline, and then they can get you know, connected with a peer support group or information that they need or, you know, whatever might be relevant for them. So if you're not sure what to do, send them our way. That's a great act of kindness. That's ontariocaregiver.ca. And I think for a lot of people, Amy, there is that sense that I'm in this alone and there's no one there to help me. And sometimes they do need to be nudged towards the website for your kind of organization and say, hey, help is out there if you need it. You don't have to suffer alone. No, and in fact, you know, what we hear consistently from caregivers is, you know, it can feel sometimes like you're the only one or or you're kind of in your own little bubble. And so recognizing that there's other people out there facing challenges, coming up with strategies for how to balance, for example, being a working caregiver or caring for a parent who's an older adult while you maybe have younger children, knowing that there's other people dealing with that and that their strategies and support can make all the difference. So we have tons of information for caregivers on our website. And and I think it also starts to bring up some of these conversations about being part of a circle of care. You talked about this in terms of family members, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, there's multiple caregivers rallying around an individual, depending on what their needs may be. And so we've got something for everyone, and we hope that this also raises the awareness in the community to say, oh, this is happening in my home or next door or wherever it may be, and, and this is an important part of our lives and our communities. Well, so my partner and I, we talk about this all the time. We are in the prime sandwich generation where we have kids in their early 20s who basically, they don't need us. They don't want us anymore, you know, except for a few options. But then we have parents who do need the help. And it's sort of reversed where we're directing our our sort of efforts and our time and energy to now. Yeah, and that's not uncommon. And, and yeah, you know, I really appreciate that you highlighted the sandwich generation because this is often the case is that you have people where, well, for me, my my kids are actually school age. So I have mm. school age kids and a dad in his 80s. Oh. Sometimes, you know, life's just interesting. And, and, and it means that I'm balancing being a parent, supporting a parent who's an older adult, being a working caregiver, and that's not uncommon where people are juggling all of these parts. And this is where we need strategies and support because it's not always easy and we need to be able to to get access to that support, figure out how do I talk to my boss about this? How do I manage this if I have to go to an appointment? And how do I also get the support that I need for me? Because I know as a caregiver, and we hear this time and time again, if we don't get the supports that we need for ourselves as caregivers, that burnout is lurking around the corner. And then we've got other challenges to face. So getting those supports for caregivers so that they can balance and manage all these things is really important. Because if their physical and mental health isn't solid, then they can't really provide the care they need. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, it's it's. I'm so glad to be talking to you, Amy. A because of what your organization does, but what you you're living it. I mean, you're walking the walk and talking the talk, which is great. Because, I mean, with the province the way it is, the aging province, so many people are dealing with this issue right now and this dilemma of how to care for someone. What do they do? Who do they turn to? So please go to their website, Ontario Caregiver. .ca, and there's just so many challenges from time to time and day to day. And I remember my wife went to buy her dad, God rest his soul, that some Vortman cookies, but bought the wrong kind. And she brought them home and goes, oh, I bought my dad the wrong cookies and he wouldn't eat them because he didn't like that that kind of cookie. And she felt bad, but I mean, it was a simple mistake. And But that's the kind of thing caregivers go through all the time. All the time. And, you know, you've highlighted that it's the simple things that are important to people, right? Yeah. Important in relationship. And the same is true with these acts of kindness. They don't have to be big and grandiose. Those little things that say, hey, I know you. I know you well enough to know that you like, you know, uh, a double-double coffee yeah. or whatever it is. That's the thing that that helps people to feel less alone and to feel a little more supported. And then when things come up, like you need the ride or whatever, there's a network. And we have to find ways to connect with each other in community because, to your point, the population is changing. More and more of us are becoming caregivers. And, in fact, many of us are caregivers, and we don't even realize that's what we're doing. <laughs> exactly. Like They'll be talking and go, wait a sec, I think you're a caregiver. And they're like, I didn't even realize it. Yeah. Uh, Monday, November 3rd. I have those conversations all the time with people oh, when they uh, realize they are. Amy, I, in your line of work, I'm sure you do. Monday, November 13th, World Kindness Day. 
you heard Amy, maybe buy someone a coffee, take take them for a drive, little simple acts, you shovel their drive, anything you can do will go such a long way to help people. Uh, Amy Kapal from the Ontario Caregiver Organization, the CEO, I can see why you're the CEO and uh, continue great work for you and your staff and, and hopefully this World Kindness Day is something we can build upon. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.